Welcome to the No Nonsense Edge Odd Podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. And I'm Murray Robinson. And hello, friends of Herbie. I am Steve Tendon. Thanks, Steve. And you're going to tell us about the Herbie story later, I hope. So welcome to the podcast. We've invited you on because we've been hearing all about TameFlow. But could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? So I am originally a software engineer and my first professional experience was with Borland International, Turbo Pascal, Sidekick, and many other legendary products of the mid eighties and early nineties. That experience was absolutely foundational in my professional uh, career and also in the making of Tameflow. But long story short, several years after due to some health problems, I could no longer be in software engineering. So I pivoted over to teaching others how to do this stuff and eventually became a management consultant, helping software companies or software intensive businesses to deal with software engineering management, but also with mergers and acquisitions of software targets. So both in the pre-merger, all the due diligence work, you know, understand if the software company has the capabilities that are advertised. And then after the actual merger, helping the two or three or more cultures coming together and work as a, a united entity. And all along the way, I have been obsessed by the topic of high performing organizations. Of course, it started off with teams, but then as a management consultant, it became organizations. So in collecting ideas about how to make organizations perform, I developed my own viewpoints and they are now known collectively under the name of the TameFlow approach or just TameFlow for short. I see it as a way of thinking that will make businesses perform, they will generate profit and they will make people happier. And with people, I include anyone whose life is touched upon by the organization. So of course, first and foremost, it's the clients, the customers. We want clients that are enthusiastic. We want the employees to be happy. We want suppliers providers, collaborators to be engaged. And of course the shareholders or stakeholders need to have their share. Yeah. So is it about finding the bottleneck in software development and then resolving it? I would expand the scope a little because while we might have an interest in knowing where the bottleneck is in the software engineering or development unit. The really interesting question is where is the bottleneck or the constraint in the organization? Let me just take one step backwards. TameFlow originated with pattern languages and pattern theory. That is the source of TameFlow. All my thinking has been done in terms of patterns. And in my quest to find the secret source of making organizations perform better and better. I did find three founding patterns documented by uh, Jim Coplin, and one of those three founding patterns is the unity of purpose. It's obvious if all folks stand behind one flag, you will perform much better than if the people in the organization are fighting one another and wasting energies in winning these infights. 
So what does this have to do with the constraint? Well, if you are able to find the constraint in the organization, you get one single focal point around which all minds, all energies, uh, all activities can converge. And therefore, the lever is enormous. It's not an 80-20 Pareto, but it's like a 1-9,999. The effect you get by acting on the constraint is just outstanding. So in that sense, finding the constraint in the organization is one of the um, most important things you could ever try to do when uh, dealing with organizational performance. Can you give us an example of what you're talking about? Well, first of all, we need to agree on what is the constraint. It's not only the physical stuff like you would have on a manufacturing floor, but it can also be something else, which is more immaterial. For instance, management attention. That is one of the greatest constraints. It's really hard to get a meeting with a top executive. Their calendar is like Tetris level 10 or more. It's impossible to find an empty slot. Their to-do list is infinite. So their attention is very, very limited. How many business critical decisions are being delayed or hold off because there is not sufficient management attention? It isn't the answer there just to delegate decision-making down as much as possible to the people doing the work. Delegation works, but only to the extent that there is a real trust between the parties. And the second founding pattern that I have in Tameflow is namely the community of trust. If I delegate something to you, I must trust that you can do the thing in a way that satisfy my expectation. But in all of the structures that we have in companies, there is one that effectively prevents delegation from working. It has nothing to do with agile mindsets. It is much more deeply ingrained in the structures of cost accounting. Cost accounting is the pursuit of resource efficiency. You do cost allocations. You want to know, you know what is the unit cost of this and how many hours are people working. And when you start dividing and slicing the business operations into bits and pieces, because you want to attribute costs to them. Well, you start drawing out silos. What is the main characteristics of a silo? It is that it refers to some key performance indicator, a KPI. Now I might give you Maurice something to, to care about a nice KPI. And then I give another KPI to Shane and you will work as crazy to improve those KPIs. You may be as agile as you want in your unit, but it just so happens that the KPI of one will be to the detriment of the KPA of the other one. So we are artificially creating a situation of conflict. And when there is conflict, what happens? I might delegate stuff to one and the other, but at a certain point, this conflict will emerge. And both of you will come to me, of course, I am the CEO. You come to me and you ask to resolve the conflict and I can't really make up my mind. So I go with my gut feeling. Remember management attention, the one of you who has managed to get the most of my attention, probably 
buying me a beer or something like that will probably get my favor. What does this do? Well, the other one will see a decision imposed and hey, that manager there, he's driven by command and control. That's not agile. It's Tayloristic. You see, this has nothing to do with Taylor. It's a consequence of the uh, accounting structures and the cost accounting that creates these silos and conflicts, and that prevents effective delegation. But that's what we taught, right? We taught from a management point of view, what we do is we give people accountability and then we say, well, if you're accountable, but you can't control your own destiny, you can't actually achieve it. So we give you a team, we give you budget, we give you the tools you need to deliver your promises because you're accountable. And by doing that, we create a silo. We teach you to build a fiefdom. We teach you to hog your resources so you can meet your goals. And ideally your goals are aligned with the organizations and all the other silos, but often it's not. And cost accounting is a very visual way that we can see that's happening, but it's just a cause and effect, right? Cost accounting is the effect of giving people accountability and control. Isn't that right? No, I wouldn't see it that way. Cost accounting originates from taxes. You have to report to pay your taxes. And that's why we have all these accounting standards. And in the calculation of the taxes and all the, the profit and loss, of course, you aim to maximize some number rather than another. And the cost accounting mindset is trying to squeeze the lemon as much as possible. Now, it doesn't matter if I divide the company in uh, two, three or 50 silos, they are all lemons and need to be squeezed. So let's give the sales guy a target and compensate them with the commission. Let's reward the production engineer with resource efficiency numbers. And there already, you can see that you have two completely different KPIs and they will go in different directions. And at the top, that conflict is felt. What about the OKR approach as a solution to that? Set a big objective for the organization, break it down into sub-objectives, but don't do it by functional silo, do it by customer-focused goals? OKRs are a great step forward with respect to what was there before. I mean, it originates from management by objectives, which then was corrected in, in Intel and then picked up more in Google. It is a way of thinking that is very much aligned with the theory of constraints. I don't know if you've seen Goldratt's six questions about innovation, but it starts with the question what is the constraint for the customer? Not for us, not for my unit, not for my business, but let's go outside and see what is the constraint of the customer and how can we resolve that? Let's put all our focus on resolving that constraint. So we attend to something very clear that is the constraint of the customer. And that can be referred to the high level objectives of, of an OKR breakdown structure. I don't know if you're familiar with the strategy and tactics trees from the theory of constraints, they are very similar to the OKRs. They have some elements which are more scientific in a way. And one of them is the idea that you don't have a key result, but an expected effect. And I like that formulation much more because an effect means that it's something you can cause. Yes, you can have aspirational results. But I like to be more concrete and use either metrics that we can measure 
the progression and OKRs do have that dimension of including metrics or observations of some outcome. And if you can observe or measure, you are actually able to say if you're making progress. I think OKRs though are amply misused because they are again being used as tools almost for micromanagement. And this is not what OKRs are about, but that is what happens out there in practice. They become tools of micromanagement and there is not ongoing attention to are we progressing? And one thing that I do not like about OKRs in general is the cadenced approach that you have on a regular basis, like the review of how things are going. Cadences in my world are an anti-pattern and they really drag down performance enormously. Could be worse. It could be a 90 day planning window where all the planning's done in for 90 days and you can't change it ever, right? Cause, cause that's a good idea. It could be even 180 days, five year plan. So I'm old enough to remember uh, balance scorecards and I'm old enough to remember uh, cause and effect. And the problem I had with it was it was great to look at, at indicators, but this idea of understanding one constraint doesn't make sense, right? It's a silo. It's the ability to see the constraints all the way through the system is where the value is. And so therefore things like OKRs, it's the ability to see how each of those lemons can work together rather than squeezing each lemon independently. Is that kind of the whole philosophy around this flow and theory of constraints practice? I think OKR has this great merit that for the first time it provides uh, companies with, let's say an actionable, practical way to address the system. But what OKRs are missing dearly is what you hinted at with the focus on the construction. I think it might be opportune for you to tell the story of Herbie. I love the story of Herbie and it was told the first time in uh, Dr. Eliyahu Goldratt's business novel, The Goal, the book where Goldratt popularized the theory of constraints. It was about this plant manager, Alex Rogo, who was trying to figure out how to run his factory. And uh, there was a topical moment where he understood what he had to do, but it did not happen on the factory floor. It happened as he was leading, um, a team of boy scouts on a hike, they had to cross the woods, uh, the woodlands and do climbs and everything and reach the base camp before the sun set. So that sounds like a project with a deadline. Now, when they set off, it was all fine, but, um, slowly, but surely one of the scouts was, uh, slowing down and he dropped to the end of the line. And after a while he was being dropped off. And of course, Alex was concerned. He had to keep all the boys together and he started shouting, Herbie, move on. And you all know how that goes. You shout at people and everything goes better. No, not really. So he was not able to keep the Boy Scouts together and he stopped the line and said, now all gather here, let's wait for Herbie. Herbie came along and they said, now in your positions, just join your hands and let's turn around. Herbie goes at the head and uh, the guy who was at the head goes at the end. They were all oh, a bit grumpy. Why should we walk behind Herbie? He's the slowest. What's a drain? What's a waste? But at least when they started, they kept together. They did not lose anyone in the woods. 
yet they were too slow. They were not able to reach the base camp in time. So Alex had a second inside and he stopped the line again and said, now Herbie, your backpack seems a bit heavy. What do you have inside there? And Herbie being a boy scout, he was, uh, always prepared opened the backpack and out came like six cans of tuna <laughs> and tools and extra boots and everything. He was really overloaded. And Alex said, Hey, you other guys pick up a piece of Herbie's gear and you carry it for him. And they were even more grumpy, but Herbie having been offloaded of his weight could walk at a faster pace and they made it just in time before the sunset they arrived at the base camp. That is the story of Herbie. Now, what does this mean? How should we interpret the story? It is an illustration of the five focusing steps, which are the basis of the theory of constraints. Step number one, the most important one is identify Herbie. That was when Alex was shouting, Herbie, move on. He had found the slowest moving part. The second one is to try to make Herbie to walk the fastest he possibly can. The third one is when all the other Boy Scouts walk behind Herbie. So no one pulls away in front. They all stick together. The fourth one is sharing of the load, the offloading of Herbie. And the fifth one is when you've done all of this, don't let inertia settle in because, uh, Maybe someone else becomes a constraint. Maybe the strongest, the fastest boy trips over and injures his foot. And then all of a sudden the constraint is someone else. This is the essence of the theory of constraints and the story of Herbie. Yeah, it's a great story, but that's a very simple case. We work in a software development field where it can be really hard to identify what the constraint is because people are telling you there are hundreds of problems and hundreds of constraints. You could just try resolving them one by one, but is there a better way of finding out the real constraint right now? How, how do you do that in the software development world? Well, thank you for that question, Murray, because that has been the question that has kept me busy for the last 12 years or even more. There is this idea that it is impossible to find the constraint, by the way, no, that is one thing that is taken for, for granted in the theory of constraints that we are talking about one single constraint, not a multitude. And in this high paced changing world of software, where you have uh, surprises around every corner, it's really hard. You know, how do we find the constraint in a software engineering management situation? I illustrate this with the metaphor of multiple Jeeps that goes through a journey in a jungle. The jungle is the work that is in the future that you might be road mapping out. Where is this Jeep heading to? It's heading into the jungle along uh, a certain path, which will become the journey. As we're looking at this multitude of Jeeps. It's the Jeep that has the path in front of it that we think will take the longest. That is the constraint in the workflow. Now, what can happen? Well, even the strongest Jeep can have some problem and it will start to slow down. So even a Jeep that had a very short trajectory to destination 
could all of a sudden become the slowest one. So it is the constraint in the work execution. So you made some assumptions there, like you have a clear purpose that people know what it is, and then that you have teams that are functioning to achieve the purpose, which is not always the case at all, because it's often the case that you have a requirements team and then you have a separate development team and then a separate test team and all they're focused on is their narrow little thing. So they're not really working towards an outcome. What I would do, I suppose, is say, what is the purpose? How can we organize these teams so that they are helping us achieve the purpose from end end and then put in place a, a Kanban board look for the constraint and then go through the focusing steps on the constraint. And then if we're doing that for each team and that's starting to work, then look at all the teams and see which team has the biggest amount of work ahead of it in order to achieve the larger goal. I, I think that's what I'm hearing from you. No, I'm glad you mentioned the purpose because Goldratt's novel was called the goal. So there is a lot of purpose-driven action. And remember my founding pattern was unity of purpose. So it's not a multitude of purposes, it's one. We need to get the entire organization to stand behind that purpose. And that's really easy to do once you break away from the cost accounting mindset and you start to introduce throughput accounting. Now, throughput in the world of TOC and Tameflow really means financial throughput. So yes, you are absolutely right. Now the company is to know where they are heading to, and that is the key responsibility of top management to set the direction, to know what they want, and then create the conditions for the individual teams. And I would say even for the individuals, the people, the Herbies to work in concerted, orchestrated way towards that purpose. So in that you're absolutely right. Now the purpose, start with why, is absolutely fundamental. Yeah, I've seen quite a few organizations that different people will all have different ideas of what the purpose is. Some of them will be customer focused, some of them will be project focused, some of them will be focused on compliance. So I think Getting agreement on the overall purpose would probably be a good starting point. And, and maybe this might be a good point for you to tell us about the inspired leadership pattern that you mentioned before. Often you hear about the inspiring leader that is projecting out some magic light that will enlighten people and drive them to action. But we don't need leaders in the classical sense. We need acts of leadership. And such acts can only be undertaken by people who are confident that what they do will not be undone because of some overarching intervention from top management. Now, inspired leadership is really something that goes deep into the needs of individuals and is triggered from what I call the lighted self-interest. Uh, we in the quest of the purpose, as you said, but no matter what the higher purpose is, in order to make it happen, we need money and time. So let's start with that. Now that's 
that's a key self-interest. I would like to have more time for myself. And then the money aspect. Okay, let's put these two ideas back into the company. Can we structure the company so that everyone gets more money and less time at work? And if we all agree that each one of us uh, will get more money and more time at home so that we can pursue our own interests, well, maybe that is something that will allow us to take action. And it is in that taking action that people can take the initiative. That is the inspired leadership. Now, what is the point here? That if we have this overarching mental model that we want to maximize that speed of generation of money, money over time, if that is the premise and we know where the constraint is, then I can rest assured that the software engineer or the junior hire will autonomously make decisions that go in that direction. And I can trust them that their decisions will tend to increase that ratio. By trusting them, I put them in a position to take decisions alone. And when they take decisions alone, they can take decisions that are so impactful so important that they become acts of leadership. But that act was inspired by something which was triggered by that self-interest. So you see how we are closing the circle and we're going back to that first question of the delegation. So what we're doing here is as a leader, we're harnessing people's self-interest by connecting it to the goal that we're all trying to achieve and showing how we can all benefit from it. So what you're saying? In a way, we trigger that element of, oh yeah, I see what is in it for me. And if we can connect that to decision-making that moves the company forward towards its goal, well, that is the secret sauce. I wanted to ask you about mental models, because I've heard you say that mental models is a big part of things for you, but I haven't really heard you say what the different mental models are. What I see a lot in management is an assumption that the best way to organize is like a Ford factory where you have a highly specialized department with specialized tools doing something very efficiently and effectively and then handing it over to the next department to do the same thing and the next department and the next department eventually a car pops out at the end and it's very cheap and profitable. That's this basic assumption that a lot of managers have without thinking about it at all. And they organize everything like that all the time. And yet it doesn't seem to work at all in software development or product development. So I wanted to understand more about these common mental models that you think people have and, and where they might go wrong. Well, first a comment on that Ford factory. Um, I think that as organizations grow, specialization emerges from the nature of the work even when we are talking about software, because you will inevitably have people, say software engineers, who have a deep technical knowledge. They know all the tools of the trade inside out, but they also know the domain, say financial services, because they've been around for a while, and they know how the software is addressing uh, the needs of that domain. So they are repositories of very, very deep knowledge. 
Now we can organize the teams and the roles in many ways. We can adopt practices like pair programming or mob programming or ensemble programming to better share the knowledge. But these figures, especially in large organizations, will always be there. So you cannot escape the emergence of specialized points of knowledge and competencies. Now, going to the mental models. First of all, if you have these specialists, typically they will be overloaded. So most likely they will be Herbies or part of the unit that is, and that's, that's a connection with the, with the TOC. But going more specifically to the mental models, what are the mental models? Well, they are like the, the way each one of us, it's an individual thing, the ways that we look at reality and interpret that reality. That interpretation will cause you to make decisions. Those decisions turns into action. And then the action might be, if you're smart, you might do some reflection and retrospection and was it good, was it not, what can I change? It goes back to all these improvement loops, PDCA, PDSA, the, the five focusing steps. So it's, it's the moment you look backwards. But what, what is the point here is that if you do not address the question of what are the mental models that matter for all of us to work together towards a common goal, well, I have my mental model, you have yours, and we are setting up another situation of conflict. Conflict goes counter to the unity of purpose. So having shared mental models to which we subscribe, why? In virtue of the self, enlightened self-interest. Now we see that that mental model really makes a difference for me. I see the what's in it for me. Then if we have the shared mental models, we are again increasing the degree to which decision-making can be delegated. We can, uh, trust people more, we give them autonomy to make decisions, and we trust that those decisions go in the right direction. So the, is, this, is this about exposing our mental models so that we can understand each other better and agree on a, on a common way of thinking about our problems so we get unity of purpose? Is that what you're talking about? In a way, yes, you know, because if you take, you know, for me, the fundamental metric for the whole company is money over time, because that <clears throat> encompasses those two dimensions of, that are relevant for the self-interest. Okay. Let's focus on time, for instance, time, which is something we, we all share. Now in the cost accounting world, you are convinced that resource efficiency is what matters. So. Hey, Murray, I pay you a salary. You better be working all the time, right? That's, uh, that's resource efficiency. Now, wouldn't it be better if I worked on the right thing, the thing that was going to make the most value for customers or the most profit for the organization? Well, of course you have to work on the right thing, but since I'm paying you a salary, you better be working all the time. <laughs> so that's still the cost accounting mindset that comes about, even if you are looking at the right thing. So. That is, that is like a mental model, the resource efficiency. Now we all know that models, they, they are, they are all wrong, but some are more or less useful. The resource efficiency mindset or model or framing works. It has worked for uh, the whole industrial age area, but it's maybe not the one that gives the, the best effect. 
So that's where you maybe flip over and say, okay, uh, we need to look at flow efficiency. And then uh, we get the whole Kanban movement where there is the idea that cycle time matters. So let's reduce cycle time and reduce the work in process. But even if you focus on flow efficiency and you want to reduce cycle time, I can show you that in some instances, actually most instances, the company is not improving at all. Then you have like a third mental model, which is the throughput efficiency model. There you can even have the situation where you increase the cycle time and you get more out of the system. That seems like a paradox, but it's made possible if you know where the constraint is. I'm going to need an example for that one because so I'm, I'm going to get more throughput by increasing the cycle time because that relieves the bottleneck. Yeah, that's the point. So take this story of Herbie, it's there. Now, if you look at the Boy Scout who was leading at the beginning, he was the fastest one. So if everyone walked at the pace of that leader, the cycle time, the end to end time would be shorter, but you couldn't allow the leader to go away, to rush away and leave Herbie alone behind in the woods. I see. So if you measured it by the time that each of the Boy Scouts arrived at camp, you might think, oh, that's good. Cause the average was quite good. It's just that somebody arrived in the middle of the night and that's a terrible thing. Well, yes. I mean, the steps between the first boy and Herbie is representative of the work in process that stays in front of Herbie. Now, when, when you are offloading Herbie's backpack and he can walk faster, everyone was forcefully made to stay behind Herbie in an organized uh, way of working that is not possible because certain steps have to be performed before others. I mean, coding has to be done before testing just for an obvious one, uh, or deployment. You can't deploy unless you have the code. So you cannot use that trick of putting one behind the other, but yet the work between the first and the critical point is the work in process, which you want to uh, reduce. How can you make that working process, uh, become smaller? One way is to increase the speed of Herbie. Well, how do we do that? We offloaded Herbie. So the individual cycle time of Herbie becomes shorter, but at the same time, because we are loading all others, all others have their individual cycle time that becomes longer. And you know what? Because Herbie is one and all others are many, especially in large organizations, most of the improvement initiatives that you see out there fail. Why? Because they are improving where it does not matter. The only place where improvement matters is on Herbie. So I have worked in a program where I, I found a Herbie and this Herbie was a security expert in a program that, where that was very important. He was brilliant and hardworking, but everything was bottlenecking with him all the time. Like a hundred person team was being bottlenecked by him and another guy doing the same job. Now we recruited other security people to help him, but it didn't help because he had to spend time helping with the recruitment, which took him away from doing the, the work. And then he had to teach them 
what he was doing because he was such an expert. So that took time away from him doing the actual work. And then he wasn't happy with what they were doing. So there was a lot of review and feedback. So the more we tried to get him to spread his backpack amongst other people, the more difficulty we had. And he kept saying, no, take all these people away and let me do my work. Yeah, of course. You now there you run into the fourth flow of Tameflow, which is psychological flow. Now, how do you get people to be really engaged and understanding what really matters? Now, there are many, many elements that come into play, but typically it's, it is an internal conflict that people have between job security and, uh, and satisfaction. Well, I'm doing a good job and I'm happy about this. In this instance, it's obvious that if you're telling someone, Hey, we'll get some more people that do your job. Well, the red lights start blinking. So just someone will take my job. And uh, at the same time, because uh, you are asking the person to dedicate time to work on other stuff than the satisfying job that is diminishing the satisfaction. So obviously this person would be paralyzed and would do everything to avoid helping in unbottlenecking the situation. So in these instances, that's where you really need the inspired leadership to come into action. That's where the mental models have to be put into the light so that they become clear and you have to get to the point where the self-interest of that person is tickled. So one way to do this is say, uh, you obviously will become the leader of a new team because now you are the only one, but if you get 10 people, you will be leading 10 people. And if this is done properly, you will see an uh, increase in the throughput of your activity. And of course, then we also need to design the compensation scheme accordingly, and you will get more time off. Now, maybe this is a work alcoholic and doesn't want to have work time off. And that's another, another issue, but that's how you start building up the case for, for tickling the self-interest and maybe get to the point where, where this person say, hey, yeah, well, I would really like to have some more time for myself. This makes sense. And, and not give the opportunity to fall into that passive aggressive behavior that you just, just described. But of course it needs that managers on top of this person are very sensitive to the psychological needs of the individual. If we cannot cater for the needs of the individual, they will just become defensive and you will have this sort of problems. Uh, yeah, this, this was occurring in an environment with some pretty ferocious management. So maybe that was the underlying issue there. Well, that's key point. Now, when you are looking for the constraint, oftentimes it's not what appears to be the constraint. In this case, you could probably conclude that the, the real constraint was some mental model or collection of mental models held by managers because they have created the situation. So that's where you need to, to work with the managers first. And oftentimes if you want to do a real long lasting, impactful quote, quote, transformation, I hate that word by the way, but that's what goes into industry. The only place where to start is with top management, with leadership workshops, where you get all the top guys in a room and you start asking them questions. Yeah, I read a wonderful anecdote where. I don't know who it was, but he went into this company and, and asked everyone, have you been uh, top guys? Have you been promoted recently? Yes. Are, are you working well? Yes. Top notch. My unit is perfect. Everyone was perfect. 
And then he says, no, if every, if everyone is so perfect here and all the KPIs are good, why are you calling me? Why is the company not working well? Now that is thought provoking. Look in the mirror. Shall we go to summaries? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I like the idea of, of three core foundational patterns and the ones you talked about were unity of purpose, community of trust and inspired leadership. So I like that sense of why are we here? What do we get out of this work that we do? That's more than just getting paid because we can get paid by lots of people. I think that's good. And I find that interesting because whenever I hear theory constraints and system thinking, I think cogs in a machine. So I'm always kind of interested when we talk more about why the machine's there and what it's trying to achieve than the machine itself. I love the way you tell stories. So for me, telling stories helps people understand complex things and systems thinking and theory of constraints to me seems incredibly complex, right? So the use of stories, the use of Herbie, the idea that a bottleneck is there for a reason. If I didn't have a bottleneck on my beer, I'm going to have to chug it and not enjoy it. So that thing that regulates the flow was interesting. And then the idea of manager's attention, right? So again, from a holistic point of view, don't think about the cogs, don't think about just the work that's been done, the tasks, but look at the environment, right? What's happening? Oh, managers have no time. Okay. What's that causing? Where's the constraint or the bottleneck that they're causing and how do we fix that? And I think that kind of led on to something you radiated time and time again. Typically where you think the constraint is, is not where the constraint is. It's something visible, but you make that better. You reduce the bottleneck or you reduce the constraint. It, probably the system isn't going to work any better because you haven't found it. And then a little bit about OKRs are a better way of helping us understand that system or approaching the system than some of the old ways we had. And then the one that got me the most is start with what is the constraint of the customer? Don't, don't look internally first. Look at your customer. What's their constraint? If you're not fixing that, why are you in business? You can have the, the best system in the world, but if you're not solving a customer problem, then uh, you won't be successful. So hadn't thought about that, right? What's the constraint the customer has and how is what we do fix that problem for them? So that's me. That's what I got from this chat. Murray. Yeah, I really do like the Herbie story. I, I think it brings a lot of clarity. So thanks for telling us that. I was just reflecting on your last point that maybe it all comes back to the mental model of your senior leadership. I think that organizations are a reflection of the senior leadership. They're the ones who create the culture. They're the ones who have the mental models that everybody has to follow to get paid or to advance. And so ultimately dysfunctions in an organization are a reflection of the way the senior leadership is working. And so somehow we have to get in there and help them. I, I also do like the way you talked about finding the constraint in software development. I think it makes a lot of sense to identify your purpose, organize your teams to achieve the purpose, then identify the constraint within each team by identifying where things are taking the longest to get done, and then identify the team with the biggest problem by understanding which one has the biggest path in front of it to where it needs to go. So that clarifies things for me when I'm talking to organizations. Often they're not even at the point where they have clear teams or clear purpose. So we can't assume that that's there. So we have to often do some work with that to even get going with any of this stuff. And then, yes, it's very true. 
as you've said, that you will have bottlenecks around experts in software development and we can help them to spread the load like Herbie's backpack, but we have to provide them with the psychological safety and the psychological incentive to do that. Otherwise they will just hold on to all the specialties so that they can keep their jobs and get paid well. These are all good things to think about in my next engagement, I think. Did you want to comment on anything we raised, Steve? Well, excellent summaries. Yes, you have touched upon one thing there about the hindrance of leadership. The level or degree of development of our, any organization will never go beyond uh, what the top leader is capable of. So if the top leader is tied to the cost accounting resource efficiency mindset, well, that organization will not go beyond that. So that's why we need to start from the top and work with the mental models that clearly tickle the self-interest of the leaders, but that can also be shared because they will tickle the self-interest of everyone else. And yeah, I think that's, that's maybe the concluding reflection before we leave. In the story of Herbie, what we are really seeing is that we leave no one alone behind in the woods. We all keep together and we all share the load. That is the essence of the five focusing steps. And I would say, you no, know, that reflects what I stand for and what I try to implement with teams and people that I work with. That's good. Yeah, I like that. And where can people find out more about you and your company, Steve? Well, I have a tiny website, which is stainflow.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Tendon, T-E-N-D-O-N. Likewise, on LinkedIn, you search for Tendon and probably you find me. But I would also like to invite the audience to join the Tameflow community site. It's called the Tameflow Circle. And you find it at https circle.tameflow.com. Circle.tameflow.com. Great. All right. Thanks for coming on. That's been great. It's been a pleasure. And remember, Herbie is your best friend. That was the No Nonsense Agile podcast from Murray Robinson and Shane Gibson. If you'd like help with Agile, contact Murray at evolve.co. That's evolve with a zero. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.